Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book... Ouch! Now I remember reflecting on an earlier time, and Tom joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Tom. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, This is really uh, quite a unique book because it's part of a trilogy, Ouch! Now I Remember, and in general, it kind of it's your early days, right? Growing up and how you turned into a policy wonk, and we'll find out what a policy wonk is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, uh, even though it's the second book in the trilogy, it uh, logically is the first book because it deals with my early years, and to some extent it's a coming-of-age book uh, uh, in the sense that I was a very unpromising kid from a working-class ethnic neighborhood that most people thought would probably end up in jail uh, than any place else, and by a, a set of circumstances, and I think because of uh, America was still a land of opportunity back then, ended up in a top research university and as a nationally known policy one. It was an exciting journey. Well, as you point out, America back, what were, and what time period are we talking about when you were growing up and going through school? What, what, what uh, decades are we talking about here? Uh, talking about the, uh, I was born in 1944, so we're talking basically uh, the 1950s, 1960s, uh, early 1970s. I mean, the bulk of the, of the book uh, focuses on that time period. Um, which also corresponds to a, a time period of great economic growth in the United yes, States, yes. middle class and so forth. So it, um, but it was also some fun times. You had the Cold War period, and we all waited for the Ruskies to drop the big one and used to hide under our desks at school. And then they had the 1960s where we took to the streets to change the world. So it was a, an, a time of enormous energy, enormous promise, and a, a lot of foolishness as well. And as you point out, America, back then, opportunity really existed in abundance. It's a lot different today than it was back then. Absolutely. I mean, my parents had very little money, um, and, you know, I I went to run-down schools and and poor neighborhoods. But still, I could go to, uh, I I could still make it through with a little bit of work, hard work, you know, to a, a private college. Uh, and all the way on to my P- uh, Ph.D. eventually. And uh, today, uh, and I taught uh, in, uh, at the University of Wisconsin for many years, and I would look over these students uh, now who are, who are just burdened with incredible debt. I mean, it, everything is so expensive. Mm. Uh, and the mountain is just much, much higher uh, for them than it was for us. So you became a mover and a shaker in policy circles. Now, how did that come about? Did you see yourself as that kind of a, were you that kind of a proactive person? Uh, in, a, in, a, in one way, yes, and in another way, no. The yes part is 
that from a very early age, I, I was always looking for meaning and and uh, in life, and that led me to jobs where I could help people working in the hospital, working in a neighborhood opportunity center that was part of the war in poverty. Uh, it led me into the seminary to study for the priesthood and uh, into the uh, uh, and into the Peace Corps, where I spent two years in India. So I was always looking for uh, something where I could contribute. Uh, the no part is, no, I never saw myself as a policy wonk per se. I was pretty aimless uh, in life, and I got my first job entirely by accident in the state of Wisconsin, uh, where I showed up for a job interview, and I had no idea what the job was. turned out it was for a research analyst in social services, and for some strange reason they hired me. And about four years later, I worked with a professor on a from the University of Wisconsin on a large research project. When he got the money, he called me and said, do you want to come down and run it for me? I said, sure, why not? That got me to the university, and then I got my doctorate, and I've, I never left. I said, spent my professional career at a place called the Institute for Research on Poverty, which is the, has been since mid-1960s the premier uh, think tank, uh, academic think tank, on welfare and poverty and social welfare issues. What, fun. what kind fun. of what kind of an impact did the Peace Corps have on you? It was a uh, well, a couple of impacts. Personally, it was an amazing experience. Very difficult. India, nineteen sixties. You're isolated. You're, and we were we had great training, but we were thrown into a a job that we were not suited for. We were mostly uh, college kids some good schools, and a lot of them, you know, from Berkeley and Yale, Columbia, whatever. But we were, we were set out to be agricultural experts, and none of us had ever seen a farm. So that was a bit of a mis, uh, misplanning, and I won't go into the reasons for that. Uh, but to survive two years in rural India, you learn a lot about yourself. And in, in a way, the whole trilogy comes out of that experience, because... Forty years after we came back to the, uh, the States in 1969, so, so 2009, the group got together, and at the end of our get-together, I never went to any reunions in my life. I went to this one, and it turned out to be very emotional. And at the end, we kind of said, you know, we got to write up our our, um, our experiences, and we did. I and mean, I have put it together. And then we wrote a second volume. And, and from that, I said, boy, this is a lot of fun. And out of that... Uh, I started working on the trilogy. So but, you know, there, there are things. About, I mean, let me just give you one example. Just you never can appreciate the 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 meaning of culture until you live in a, an entirely different culture, because then you have to think about everything every day. India uh, was a demanding place in the sense that it was easy to make mistakes and and people are kind of unforgiving. And so you had to think about everything. I mean, we go through life, 99% of our daily lives are unconscious. But uh, there, you really get to know who you are and what your, what your priors are, your values are, when you live in an, a, a very radically different uh, set of norms and values and expectations. It, it was an amazing experience. Even though we're talking about uh, your experiences learning to be this 
social policy wonk as you describe yourself. This isn't about some dry subject. You want, basically, you hope the readers laugh a lot. Yes. Uh, one of the prof- reviewers of the book, professional reviewers, said that she kept laughing out loud as she went through it. I mean, uh, 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 Ouch, Now I Remember is particularly funny. I mean, I I wrote it just purely as I view the world, which is with a a lot of laughter and humor. Browsing uh, uh, through my candy store is is humorous. And that's your first book. That's your first book. That's the first book. It's it's also written in a light, accessible way, but I intended it to be a little more serious because I actually hope that uh, students might pick it up and or it might be assigned in, in some policy courses. But yes, uh, ouch! Now I remember it's very funny. I, I remember I gave it to a, a copy to a friend who started guffawing reading the, the dedication. I thought, boy, it's, it's a pretty funny book. If you, <laughs> they start laughing before they even get to page one. Well, since we've mentioned the first book, and there's, as we've already said, this is a trilogy. You have another one in the making. Yes, uh, it's uh, it's called the Boat Captain's Conundrum, which means almost nothing. That's the working title. We'll see if it lasts. Uh, but um, so, it, it, to some extent, it picks up on browsing uh, through my candy store, uh, in the sense that I am on a bit of a mission to communicate the fact that doing policy doesn't have to be dry, boring stuff. I used to, I used to, uh, it, was, it was a required course, social policy was a required course for social work students, and I could see them dragging themselves into the class, many of them. They want to, many, most of them want to be you know, like marriage therapists and, and clinicians. I said, oh, my God, I have to sit through this terrible stuff. And, uh, you know, I said, this is really fun and when, if you when you really get into it. Uh, it's difficult, frustrating, hard, you know, you get yelled at. There are many issues in which you cannot satisfy not only everyone, you can't satisfy anyone. One of my favorite mantras on welfare reform, for example, was that I know I was approaching the truth when no one agreed with what I was saying. And so, you know, you have to have a kind of a hard skin, but, but, but the rewards are enormous. And so browsing through my candy store was my professional life, life in the trenches, four decades of uh, policy issues and change, uh, social policy, welfare, welfare reform, uh, and the boat captain's conundrum is going to be getting into the mind of a policy walk. How do they really think? Not, not the analysis. You can get tons of books on how to do regression analysis and you know benefit cost analysis. But how do policy makers and wonks really think about things? And if I can capture that, it'll be a great contribution. And you hope that we will understand your view of that you never know how someone will turn out at the end of his life's race by looking at where that individual began. Absolutely. <laughs> so for all those kids who think they are hopeless, and, and uh, believe me, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. And I, the first chapter in, in Ouch, Now I Remember, and that's, the, that's where the title comes from. You know, I think back to this, this kid, this hopeless kid, and I would go, oh, my God, all these terrible you know, uh, experiences I had and all these mistakes that I made. Uh, it's lucky I didn't end up in an institution. But, you know, uh, but 
but it 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 it, it did it did, work, it did work out. I mean, and uh, the first chapter, you know, goes through a whole series. It, it starts out when I'm retiring from the university, from you know, and all these people came, and I'm sort of thinking back how I got there, and all these different sort of vocational dreams I had as a young kid, and each one of them. You know, I, I dismissed because there's no way I was going to be an astronaut or a cowboy or a baseball player. Uh, and finally, I came down to, my God, I'm going to have to learn something and try to fool people <laughs> yeah. for the rest of my life. Going to have so. to learn something. And that's what's so great about, I guess when you look back, you like you've already pointed out, we see, well, hopefully we see that we've made progress along the way and we've turned into somebody that we probably never, ever expected to turn into. Uh, personally, that is true. Uh, and in part, it was... It was the circumstances of the time. It was cheaper to go to college. Uh, you know, it, it was, there was just, I think, some more, uh, there was a, a more thriving middle class, uh, even though we were at the very lowest end of, the, of probably more working class, for sure. Uh, you know, and, and growing up, there, we had very little. I mean, there, there was no, we had an icebox, you know, and there was no central heating. In some ways, you know, I grew up in a in a relatively impoverished neighborhood and, and household, and yet it was possible to climb your way out. Uh, now, one could say, "Gee, people who are poor today, why can't they, they do the same thing?" You know, I did it. Why can't they do it? I think the mountain top is much higher now, uh, and and I was gifted, I I believe, with you know a certain amount of. Native intelligence and a, and a gift for uh, communicating well and writing well, uh, and so I, I realize that everyone doesn't have the same starting place uh, in in life. But we provide less supports in this country than our peers in uh, Europe, and particularly in the Scandinavian countries, which uh, will pro- uh, which uh, 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 enable people to go to college for free, for example. They'll even American kids who go over uh, to many of these countries can get a free education, uh, and uh, and many other and many other vocational uh, training kinds of uh, opportunities and so forth, which we have been cutting back on. As, uh, when I look at what's happened to the University of Wisconsin and other major universities in recent years, it's really a national tragedy. Uh, the cost of going is skyrocketing. Uh, and the amount of public support is uh, declining. And this was a major advanced, comparative advantage we had in the world. Our secondary education system was top-notch, and we're letting it slide, which would be very too bad because it would be very hard to get back if we do. We've been listening to Tom Corbett, the author of his book, Ouch! Now I Remember, reflecting on an earlier time. It's part of a trilogy Tom, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, I suppose uh, Amazon.com or Barnes and & Noble, uh, and just look at, under the title uh, or under the author, and you should be able to access the two first books. And I'm hoping that the third book will be out uh, this fall. Great to have you on Ex Libris on air, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live la bella vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live la bella vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on toginet.com. to Ex Libris. Hello and welcome to Toganet Radio's Author Voices on Air. My name is Deb Han. It's a pleasure to be with you again this afternoon. And it's a pleasure to bring a really fabulous author, a really interesting book and a real call to arms or a call to action. Um, we're going to be talking today with Reverend Peter Blackburn and he's written a fantastic book called Jesus at Work, A Call to the People of God. And without further ado, I'm going to hand straight over to you. Peter, how are you? Welcome. Oh, I am well, thanks, Deb. It's a touch warm here, but then uh, I'm keeping cool. That's it. You're up there in God's country in far north Queensland, aren't you? That's right, yep. <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the world, absolutely beautiful part of the world. Um, Peter, thank you so much for for writing this book. This, um, you know, it's it's interesting. In your in your preface, you spoke about. Um, in fact, you have a wonderful uh, preface about um, if if you were to go away somewhere and you asked somebody to look after something, when you came back, you would have an expectation that it, it would be completed and cared for and so on especially if the person said yes that they would do that and in so many ways this is this book is the spiritual notion of that or it's it's Jesus call to that notion around you know look after this while we'll be back right is, is that a, a fair way to describe the how how this kind of sets your your Jesus at work book up is that right I think that sets the scene for it, Deb. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's ever happened to you, and I guess it's a it's a good story. I'm not sure that it's happened to me, but goodness gracious, is the church of today really doing what Jesus meant when he set things up a couple of thousand years ago? That's the question. Yeah, it, and it's a it's a really interesting question to ponder, and particularly when we think about um, just in our modern world there are so many you know distractions you know we call them shiny things these days um, you know what are the things that that take the people off of their their um, yeah their, their response to Jesus request and what are the things that get in the way uh, to you know to following his his call and and answer his service and so on so and and you go on to talk a lot about that in in your book, which which you've 
is really wonderful as a call to the people of God. It's very, very appropriate. You're, you're speaking very specifically to his community, to, to, to his believers. So um, what was it that really inspired you to, to, yeah, to write this book? And especially now, why, why now? Well, I didn't mean to write a book. <laughs> I guess I'm not the first person to say that. I was just going to say, I've never heard that before. <laughs> I'm sure that there are a lot of people who don't mean to write a book. I mean, there are some people who, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to write a book. But no, I had no intention of writing a book. But um, there are a few times there's a particular congregation in the Cairns area that have needed a bit of help. And I've filled in there three or four times now. And uh, their minister was a bit stressed out and her husband has died since then actually mm. so we invited them they came down we swapped no we didn't swap houses at that time they came and stayed in our house and we went up and lived in someone's house up there and what are you going to do over three Sundays it was just three weeks and uh, so I had this idea you know Luke who wrote Luke's Gospel and Acts he begins Acts by saying in the first book, Theophilus, I was writing about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Oh, I thought, hmm, that's intriguing, isn't it? What Jesus began to do and teach. And I realized that in actual fact, the Acts of the Apostles about what Jesus continued to do and teach. And he's still at it today. So that was the beginning thought behind our series, I guess. And in those three Sundays, I developed the three first three major themes. Uh, Jesus at work building his church, growing his body, gathering his harvest. And then back home in Ingham, which is uh, our closest town, uh, we were without a minister for a year. Kindly, they didn't ask me to preach every Sunday. (laughs) But I did get the opportunity to share those three themes and uh, added a fourth and coming again. So I guess that's, that was that practical need. But, you know, once you've started on something, you say, there are a lot of other bits and pieces that belong here too. And so that's when the book began to develop. It's interesting that um, from such a simple notion and yet a complex notion at the same time but you know you formulated that really neat framework that three three point framework and what a gift those three Sundays were for you to you know to further explore them and then ultimately like you say the the book you know took flight from there um, and then you had the opportunity to to you know extend that in the um in that final part where it is about gathering um not gathering his harvest i should say about actually coming again the you know when he returns to make sure we've been doing the work properly that's right uh oh well it's uh, it's it's very striking um i guess i i had my computer up in Cairns with me and uh, you know I was preparing as I went I 
and I'd prepare something that was too long for a sermon. Mm. Well, in most of our churches, some churches have long long sermons. Most of our churches, they want it to be a bit shorter than that. And this was too long. So in actual fact, I, I said to the office of the church up there, I said, look, I've got a long version of this. I won't be preaching all this on Sunday, but if anyone wants a copy, they can have the long version. And guess what? Everyone wanted the long version. Everyone wanted the long version. And if I can just point out for our listeners, when you talk about it being a long version, we're not taught this is not war and peace. It is, it is not the no, Bible. No. <laughs> this is the whole the whole book, in fact, from from cover to cover, is just is 173 pages to be precise. So <laughs> if that's not an extended read, in fact, it's actually a very enjoyable read. I I, I love. I love your phraseology and and you know how how you express you bring such a you bring such relevance to um to Jesus's work you know so and and the intention and I, and I love the scripture that you that you bring in as well very just so very very relevant um tell me Peter who does this appeal to I mean we we get really that it, it's it's really for the believers it's for you know for Jesus's community um how how do you see this book being used in 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 his world, our world, the world? Yeah, well, I think people need to read it. Mm. <laughs> that's how. It, that's one of the ways in which it's used. But no, um, if it's if it's true, one of one of the assumptions of the book, if it's true that in some ways the church of today has forgotten what we're supposed to be doing before he comes again. Mm. Uh, I think we all need to take a serious look at that. And what I believe is that uh, all all Christian people could read this. I've endeavoured to be non-technical. Uh, I guess it's impossible to avoid that. And those of us who have had to study the technicalities uh, don't know when we're being technical. Well, to, to that end, I was actually just about to commend you in in and. Uh, because it's it's not you know you make the comment to me about it avoiding jargon and so on, but it's not rich in um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it it's sort of dogma and so on? I mean it's it, it's it's a very it's a very appropriate call to action. It's not all about crossing the r- religiosity is really what is the word I'm looking for. It's not rich in relig- religiousness if that's the word is now, right? <laughs> but it's it's you know it's it's rich in intention. It's rich in message. And um, and a, and a really beautiful call to purpose, and and I think that's what I I uh, you know think is incredibly refreshing. Yeah, interestingly, my wife and I uh, are actually in a community choir here, mm. uh, which meets at the Catholic primary school on a Monday night, and of course, people in the choir. I might have mentioned the conductor or something at one stage. Uh, they got to know that I was writing a book. Oh, we want a copy of that book. Mm-hmm. Now, in this choir, there are only three of us who are non-Catholic. So I've got all these Catholic ladies reading the book and enjoying it. And I said to the priest, Father Damien, I said, look, you really should get a copy of this book. Your people are reading it. And he made an excuse. He said, oh, there are 70,000 other books here 
and I haven't read them all yet. <laughs> but he should. Yeah. And I guess that's what I think, that, that anyone uh, at whatever level of the church structure you might like to, uh, you might like to, uh, to name it, really ought to be thinking about the issues that are in the book. It's the issues. It's not the book itself. Yeah. The book tells them that. I said to someone, I said, I'll be satisfied that the book has fulfilled its goal when I hear from the Archbishop of Canterbury and Pope Francis, I'll know that people are really taking the book seriously. Yeah. And that's a bit uh, ambitious, isn't it? Well, you know, it's good to have ambitions. It's good to have goals. It's good to... <laughs> you got to put it out there. Um, and, you know, let's be honest, in so many ways, it's that's reflective of your message. I mean, we could, we could say that Jesus had a goal for us in his absence, right? So it's it's the same thing. You know, it would be that would be a great thing if uh, you got some feedback from from both of those individuals. Would be great to you know hear their thoughts, because to that end, that that really sets up my next question for you, Peter. Yeah. Because, um, well, let's say the Archbishop and the Pope do get to read read your book, um, and anybody else for that matter. But what would be the key things that you would hope they would take from? from your book well I think the title really says it mm. it it is that Jesus is at work I would say through the church and even in spite of the church yeah and it's vitally important that we be connected to Jesus in faith and love and to one another in love and mission you know even seeing people in the local supermarket uh, you shouldn't say oh they don't go to our church, mm. but we belong together. And as I've said a few times in the book, don't know how many, uh, in heaven we'll find that there aren't any of these people of these categories. They'll be there because they're believers, not because uh, not because they've, you know, been Anglican or Catholic or Baptist or whatever. And you know that's I think that's the other point that that you make in the book that's really worth reinforcing to our to our listeners today is that we're not talking about a building called a church we're talking about a movement of people that's called a church a gathering of people that that's that that's the church not not bricks and mortar correct yeah that's right yeah yeah so really important to realize that piece and I think you're right that is a message that is missed um, frequently uh, today. Well, I see that, you know, thinking about, well, not just the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope, but people get caught up in the, in running the organisation. Mm. You know, now I've said that any, any movement, uh, even if it's divinely inspired, will have to have some organisation. It does. But if the organisation becomes what the movement is, you've lost it. Mm. And people's, you know, I think people get tied up in in the work of officers. Well, look, God bless them. We need officers. We need people to keep accounts. We need people to do all of those things. But that's not the essence of what the church is. Now, I mean, when I, before I retired, you know, I had to make sure that the that the book's balanced and all of those sort of things, but that's not what the church is. That's the thing, I think. Yeah, 
And, and you expand on that in part two of the book, particularly where you talk about the gifts of the functioning body. It's about, you know, recognizing we all have a gift, we all have a talent, we all bring, you know, our, our, our gifts and talents to the, the service of Jesus' work. So, um, we can't all be, we can't all be ministers, we can't all be, um, you know, we can't all be in the choir, we can't all be, you know, X, Y and Z, we all bring what we have in service and like you say, whether that's in the supermarket or whether it's as part of the organisation, it's just as we go through life, what are we doing to respond to that, to that call, the, you know, the mission that was left us when Jesus left, right? That's right, that's what it's about. Beautiful. Tell us, um, Peter, where can people get a copy of this book, Jesus at Work, A Call to the People of God? Ah, that's a good question at the moment. I've been trying to get it into uh, some of our larger bookstores in in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly it is available through uh, through Amazon.com, Amazon? through Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noted for Australian listeners that in fact uh, an ebook version of it is available through Angus and Robertson. Oh, fantastic! Which is interesting. I actually, Amazon in America was advertising this book before I had a hard copy in my hands. Wow. There you go. Now, I have a limited number of books here that I can sell personally at a discounted rate, but I can't offer that inter- to your international audience. But if there's anyone in Australia that particularly wants one, if they could get in touch with me, I can... I have a limited ability at this particular point to uh, to help at probably a cheaper rate than they could buy elsewhere. Perfect. If I can just say then, Peter, to our listeners, if you would like to take, uh, if you would like to make contact with Peter in relation to that, then go into the comments section here on the web page of of your, this radio station, and if you can jot a jot a note in there, we can certainly connect you with Peter to to make that happen and get his wonderful work in your hands Jesus at work a call to the people of God Peter it has been a pleasure to talk with you this afternoon really has been a pleasure I I have this wonderful sense that I could probably sit and chat and listen to you for hours just quietly well well, it may be possible to uh, to arrange that some other time <laughs> not on air <laughs> but for now we probably just need to wrap it up right I think you're right yeah, but, uh, but it's good to talk and I, I hope that this gives, gives your listeners um, the in- information and inspiration that they need. Uh, that's what it's about. Beautiful. Yep. So th- thank you again, Peter, for um, taking the time to... Actually, you know, thank you for accepting the mission to go up to Cairns for, for three Sundays and to form the sermon because, you know, for those three Sundays because that's, that was the impetus, that was the piece that, that set this, uh, this piece of work in, in, uh, in play for you. So I think I have to say thank you for accepting that mission. Um, and to our, our readers, particularly if, um, you know, if you are a believer, if you are um, of the Christian faith, it would be very, very interesting to you. And if you're not a believer, it would be interesting as well, just to get your insight into um, 
into what it is to be a part of the Christian community. So Peter, thank you again for your time this afternoon. Great talking to you and look forward to having the opportunity to talk again at some time in the not too distant future. So to our listeners, thank you for being with us again. My name is Deb Han and um, I've been here with you for Author Voices On Air for Toginet Radio. Good afternoon. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Two Journeys, subtitled Father and Son Resting Meaning and Hope Through Suffering, Forgiveness, and Prayer. And joining me from the Northeast up near Boston, Massachusetts, is author Dr. Daniel C. Nelson. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure to visit with you. This book is a personal journey uh, along with the story of your son's illness and subsequent uh, passing. Share with my listeners how this became a passion for you to share this story and this journey. Well, it started out uh, with with me becoming aware of my son's condition. He, uh, when, when I learned of it, he was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma. And uh, he did his uh, subsequent uh, chemotherapy at Mass General Hospital and his hospice stay here at my home in uh, Dover, Massachusetts. And I was already a board-certified chaplain, and uh, it drew me into hospice chaplaincy in a big way. Mm. But just to experience my own son going through the final weeks of his life and the spiritual aspect that really came to the forefront uh, really compelled me to share this with as many people who who I thought could possibly benefit from it. My understanding is your son had a, a, a positive attitude when he was diagnosed. Is that something that uh, remained throughout his illness? Yes, uh, impressively so. He, he was a type of guy that... Uh, accepted the hand that he had been dealt and uh, one of his famous lines to his mother and his four siblings and myself was uh, I'll be okay don't worry about it I'm, I'm going to be okay just uh, continue on with what you're doing as best you can very very just very impressive uh, his attitude towards uh, uh, the hand that he was dealt and hence the reason for sharing his story I'm guessing and he was in his early 20s no he's actually t- uh, 29 29. Okay. Yes. Later than that. You yes. you mentioned that you are a chaplain. Now, this is your second career, if I understand your history. That's correct. Your first career was what? I was a corporate executive. I was a head of a very high-level job, and I 
uh, took an early retirement uh, because I wanted to pursue this particular chapter of my life. Uh, throughout my life, I was always a very spiritual person, very close to God. Uh, prayer was a big part of my life, and uh, throughout my corporate career, um, prayer was uh, a big part of my daily routine. And, and uh, I just came to the point where I said, uh, it's time to say goodbye to that chapter of my life and move on to something that I feel very passionate about. So I uh, left and embarked on um, uh, what I do now. I went back to Boston College and picked up uh, three graduate degrees in theology and uh, picked up a doctorate in ministry. Um, became a permanent deacon in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and I was able to uh, give back in my own way what I wanted to give back through my lifetime experiences as an executive, a father, a husband, a worker in my, my Catholic faith. It just helped me to communicate that to uh, as many people that, uh, who could be uh, listening or in need of someone with my background. Would you explain for, for me and for my listeners, uh, generally we, and when we are thinking of the, the Catholic faith or the Catholic uh, denomination, the, uh, the, uh, the idea of having children and a family is a little bit unusual. You have a doctorate and a chaplaincy degree. Yep. Is that something that's common in the church? No, it's not. It's um, There's a difference. Uh, I'm ordained, so a deacon in the Catholic Church is an ordained minister, but we marry. Hmm. Yeah, a priest uh, in the Catholic Church does not marry. They, uh, they uh, accept celibacy. Uh, so deacons, uh, we do uh, things such as baptisms and funerals and weddings and preach and uh, catechize, evangelize, things of that nature. But a couple of other things that a priest does, like hear confessions and change the bread and wine to the body and blood of Jesus Christ, is obviously something that a deacon does not do. It's something that only a priest does. Very That's interesting. Big difference. Very interesting. 164 pages. How long did it take you uh, from the time of your son's passing to decide to write and tell his story? And how long did it take to complete well, I was actually just finishing my third graduate degree in theology at Boston College uh, when he was dying. And it was during that time that I said, you know, uh, uh, Chris's story, my son's name was Christopher, his story is so compelling that I think I'm going to pursue a doctorate and uh, my uh, focus my thesis on uh, the sharing of the experience of his spiritual journey combined with mine. Uh, I think it was something that uh, I felt compelled to share with people who perhaps are experiencing the same type of unfortunate circumstances. So it took me about, um, I'm going to say, uh, three, years three years to complete the whole thing. The people who will read your book, the listeners and those who will pick it up, what will they find in its pages? Will it simply be a, a personal story? Will it be something they can, they can apply to their own life? I think it's a combination of things. There's a bit of, uh, with each chapter, I, I give uh, more of an academic grounding uh, or a theological grounding uh, from which I would share personal narratives and, and personal stories of my son. So it's a combination of the three. And, and, and when they're brought together, uh, it helps people understand, um, at least from my point of view, uh, uh, sacred scripture a little bit better, some of the mysteries of life. And it helps people find 
uh, meaning and purpose through suffering and forgiveness and prayer. You have also penned in your first chapter, and you say this, Now as my faith journey continues to unfold, I have come to the realization that my meaning-making process is intimately and inseparably inseparably connected to Christian hope. Hope is a, a major factor of your story. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, hope is not uh, used in the way that we use it in our normal conversation, like I, I hope the Boston Red Sox win the World Series. Right. You know, Christian hope is really about trusting in the promises of God, trusting such that we live our life in a particular way. And uh, we hope, in from that perspective, the promises being uh, the eventual eternal life and the fullness of God's love for all of eternity. Absolutely a great message. You uh, have uh, completed this, and are you getting any responses? Have you been able to share this with maybe a few key people and uh, get some get some feedback? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, in addition to my family members and close friends, uh, I have uh, distributed uh, copies of the book to people who are who were in the process of experiencing loss of a loved one, or people who were struggling with their faith or people who were struggling with finding meaning and purpose in life. And uh, I've gotten extremely high marks on it, Beautiful. for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> well, I, I think that would work. I'm looking through the chapters, and, and you have uh, certainly uh, balanced it with uh, Christian insight and scriptures, along with the narrative of what took place and how it took place. You, in your retrospect, in looking back at the story and, and, and the journey that you were on, you call it two journeys. Yours, obviously, is uh, one that was toward faith and uh, writing this book. Your son's, was it also just the spiritual journey, or were there other things that he imparted to the people who were around him? Yeah, I think what, what I was trying to communicate there were some of his own struggles, um, you know, before he got sick, uh, just... The struggles that any uh, young male in America goes through, peer pressure or various types of um, disappointments or failures that, that he experienced and how he dealt with it, leading up, of course, to his death. But uh, it, it, it's a combination of, uh, you know, our physical life in this temporary physical world with our spiritual insights and the two of those together, how he used and, and I used as well, uh, those two main pillars to create uh, significant meaning and purpose in our lives. How would you describe your writing style? Is it uh, informative, uh, narrative? Uh, what would be the best way to describe it? I think it's a combination of both of those. There's a little bit of each, and I think it was done that uh, on purpose. Uh, it was I wanted to create some grounding uh, through which uh, the reader would understand where where I'm headed, and then I would use personal narratives uh, in order to bring alive uh, my description of a particular chapter. Your book also could be used as a, a help book for those who are in a similar ministry, I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think it's uh, interdenominational, it's interfaith. It really speaks to our, our human um, condition uh, that applies to all faiths. It's something that uh, speaks to the struggle of making it through life uh, with authentic meaning and purpose, uh, making it through life uh, where we become fully human, who we, be, we become who God created us to be, beings in his own image and likeness. And it's a struggle. Uh, 
to find that, and it's a struggle to uh, discover it and embrace it and, and live on with it. Would that be the underlying message and hope that you have uh, have uh, shared in your book? It would be, Jay. I mean, uh, um, it really didn't occur to me as I was writing it, but uh, in hindsight, uh, yes, that is uh, probably right up there with my initial uh, intent of uh, sharing our story to help people uh, navigate their way to their own uh, particular uh uh, problem or trial or tribulation that they were dealing with. This is your first attempt or first book that has been completed. Is there a possibility of a follow-up to this narrative? Oh, absolutely. It's it's really more about uh, just uh, as my first book, uh, let's see, um, what did I do uh, right? What did I do wrong? What can I learn? And how can I make my next venture even better? Beautifully done. The title of the book, again, is Two Journeys. Father and Son Resting Meaning and Hope Through Suffering, Forgiveness, and Prayer. And my guest has been Dr. Daniel C. Nelson. Dr. Nelson, there are many listeners who will want to get a copy of this and learn from the experience that you share. How do they do so? Well, I think the two uh, main sources would be Amazon.com. That's probably the the easiest way. That's where I get a lot of my books. And, of course, exlibris.com. Exlibris.com. And they can also do a search under your name, Daniel C. Nelson, and uh, locate this book and hopefully books in the future. We hope to hear from you again and uh, look forward to hearing about any future journeys and future journey insights that you might want to share. For sure, Jay. My pleasure. For Exlibris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Stin next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.